We want to hear from you. Help us determine which books to read on the Sleepy Bookshelf by voting on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight we'll be returning to Little Women, but before we open our book, take some time here for yourself to breathe and relax. Take a big stretch and release any tension you might be holding in your muscles. Focus on how your body feels and allow yourself to physically relax. Next, let's take a deep breath in, holding it for a moment, and exhale, breathing out all your worries and concerns. Once more now, inhale, hold it a moment, and exhale. Wonderful. Last time, we caught up with Laurie and Amy in Nice, France. He had been there for four weeks, and Amy was beginning to realize how lazy and apathetic he had become. He had lost his old energy, and this disappointed her greatly. She told him so while she sketched in the rose garden at Val Rosa, and Laurie lounged on the grass. Amy did not know that Joe had refused Laurie's hand in marriage, however, and so, when he revealed this during one of Amy's lectures, she felt quite regretful. She did, however, resolve that nonetheless, Joe would not approve of this new behavior, and someone had to tell him. They traveled back to Nice together in Amy's carriage, and seemed outwardly quite amicable and normal, though both were harboring some uncomfortable feelings. That evening, Amy received a note from Laurie, telling her that he had decided to leave Nice and go back to his grandfather's for a little while. She was thankful he had made the right decision, but recognized, too, how much she would miss him. Tonight, we reconvene with the Marches back at home for a very sad but hopeful time. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 40 The Valley of the Shadow When the first bitterness was over, the family accepted the inevitable and tried to bear it cheerfully, helping one another by the increased affection which comes to bind households tenderly together in times of trouble. They put away their grief, and each did his or her part toward making that last year a happy one. The pleasantest room in the house was set apart for Beth, and in it was gathered everything that she most loved. Flowers, pictures, her piano, the little work table, and the beloved pussies. Father's best books found their way there. Mother's easy chair, Joe's desk, Amy's finest sketches, and every day Meg brought her babies on a loving pilgrimage to make sunshine for Auntie Beth. John quietly set apart a little sum that he might enjoy the pleasure of keeping the invalid supplied with the fruit she loved and longed for. 
old Hannah never wearied of concocting dainty dishes to tempt a capricious appetite, dropping tears as she worked, and from across the sea came little gifts and cheerful letters, seeming to bring breaths of warmth and fragrance from lands that know no winter. Here, cherished like a little household saint in its shrine, sat Beth, tranquil and busy as ever, for nothing could change the sweet, unselfish nature, and even while preparing to leave life, she tried to make it happier for those who should remain behind. The feeble fingers were never idle, and one of her pleasures was to make little things for the schoolchildren daily passing to and fro, to drop a pair of mittens from her window for a pair of purple hands, a needle book for some small mother of many dolls, pen wipers for young penmen toiling through forests of pothooks, scrapbooks for picture-loving eyes, and all manner of pleasant devices, till the reluctant climbers of the ladder of learning found their way strewn with flowers, as it were, and came to regard the gentle giver as a sort of fairy godmother who sat above there and showered down gifts miraculously suited to their tastes and needs. If Beth had wanted any reward, she found it in the bright little faces, always turned up to her window, with nods and smiles, and the droll little letters which came to her, full of blots and gratitude. The first few months were very happy ones, Beth often used to look around and say, how beautiful this is, as they all sat together in her sunny room, the babies kicking and crowing on the floor, mother and sisters working near, and father reading in his pleasant voice from the wise old books, which seemed rich in good and comfortable words as applicable now as when written centuries ago. A little chapel where a paternal priest taught his flock the hard lessons all must learn, trying to show them that hope can comfort love and faith make resignation possible. Simple sermons that went straight to the souls of those who listened for the father's heart was in the minister's religion, and the frequent falter in the voice gave a double eloquence to the words he spoke or read. It was well for all that this peaceful time was given them as preparation for the sad hours to come, for by and by, Beth said that the needle was so heavy and put it down forever talking wearied her, faces troubled her, pain claimed her for its own, and her tranquil spirit was sorrowfully perturbed by the ills that vexed her feeble flesh. Ah me, such heavy days, such long, long nights, such aching hearts, and imploring prayers when those who loved her best were forced to see the thin hands stretched out to them beseechingly to hear the bitter cry, help me, help me, and to feel that there was no help. A sad eclipse of the serene soul, a sharp, struggle of the young life with death, but both were mercifully brief, and then the natural rebellion over, the old peace returned more beautiful than ever.
With the wreck of her frail body, Beth's soul grew strong, and though she said little, those about her felt that she was ready, saw that the first pilgrim called was likewise the fittest, and waited with her on the shore, trying to see the shining ones coming to receive her when she crossed the river. Joe never left her for an hour since Beth had said, I feel stronger when you are here. She slept on a couch in the room, waking often to renew the fire, to feed, lift, or wait upon the patient creature who seldom asked for anything and tried not to be a trouble. All day she haunted the room, jealous of any other nurse, and prouder of being chosen then than any other honor her life ever brought her. Precious and helpful hours to Joe, for now her heart received the teaching that it needed. Lessons in patience were so sweetly taught her that she could not fail to learn them. Charity for all, the lovely spirit that can forgive and truly forget unkindness, the loyalty to duty that makes the hardest easy, and the sincere faith that fears nothing but trusts undoubtingly. Often when she woke, Jo found Beth reading in her well-worn little book heard her singing softly to beguile the sleepless night, or saw her lean her face upon her hands while slow tears dropped through the transparent fingers, and Joe would lie, watching her with thoughts too deep for tears, feeling that Beth, in her simple, unselfish way, was trying to wean herself from the dear old life and fit herself for the life to come by sacred words of comfort, quiet prayers, and the music she loved so well. Seeing this did more for Joe than the wisest sermons, the saintliest hymns, the most fervent prayers that any voice could utter, for with eyes made clear by many tears and a heart softened by the tenderest sorrow, she recognized the beauty of her sister's life, uneventful, unambitious, yet full of the genuine virtues which smell sweet and blossom in the dust, the self-forgetfulness that makes the humblest on earth remembered soonest in heaven, the true successes which is possible to all. One night, when Beth looked among the books on her table to find something to make her forget the mortal weariness that was almost as hard to bear as pain, as she turned the leaves of her old favorite, Pilgrim's Progress, she found a little paper scribbled over in Joe's hand. The name caught her eye, and the blurred look of the lines made her sure that tears had fallen on it. Poor Joe, she's fast asleep, so I won't wake her to ask Lee. She shows me all her things. I don't think she'll mind if I look at this, thought Beth with a glance at her sister who lay on the rug with the tongs beside her, ready to wake up the minute the log fell apart. My Beth, sitting patient in the shadow till the blessed light shall come, a serene and saintly presence sanctifies our troubled home earthly joys and hopes and sorrows break like ripples on the strand of the deep and solemn river where her willing feet 
now stand. O my sister, passing from me out of human care and strife, leave me as a gift those virtues which have beautified your life. Dear, bequeath me the great patience which has power to sustain a cheerful, uncomplaining spirit in its prison house of pain. Give me, for I need it sorely, of that courage, wise and sweet, which has made the path of duty green beneath your willing feet. Give me that unselfish nature that with charity divine can pardon wrong for love's dear sake. Meek heart, forgive me mine. Thus our parting daily looseth something of its bitter pain, and while learning this hard lesson, my great loss becomes my gain. For the touch of grief will render my wild nature more serene, give life to new aspirations, a new trust in the unseen. Henceforth, safe across the river, I shall see forevermore a beloved household spirit waiting for me on the shore. Hope and faith, born of my sorrow, guardian angels shall become, and the sister gone before me, by their hands shall lead me home. Blurred and blotted, faulty and feeble as the lines were, they brought a look of inexpressible comfort to Beth's face, for her one regret had been that she had done so little, and this seemed to assure her that her life had not been useless, that her death would not bring the despair she feared. As she sat with the paper folded between her hands, the charred log fell asunder. Joe started up, revived the blaze, and crept to the bedside, hoping Beth slept. Not asleep, but so happy. Dear, see, I found this and read it. I knew you wouldn't care. Have I been all that to you, Joe? She asked with wistful, humble earnestness. Oh, Beth, so much, so much. And Joe's head went down upon the pillow beside her sister's. Then I don't feel as if I'd wasted my life. I'm not so good as you make me, but I have tried to do right. Now... It's too late to begin even to do better. Such a comfort to know that someone loves me so much and feels as if I'd helped them. More than anyone in the world, Beth. I used to think I couldn't let you go, but I'm learning to feel that I don't lose you, that you'll be more to me than ever, and death can't part us, though it seems to. I know it cannot, and don't fear it any longer, for I'm sure I shall be your best still, to love and help you more than ever. You must take my place, Joe, and be everything to father and mother when I'm gone. They will turn to you, don't fail them, and if it's hard to work alone, remember that I don't forget you and that you'll be happier in doing that than writing splendid books or seeing all the world. For love is the only thing that we can carry with us when we go, and it makes the end so easy. I'll try, Beth. And then and there, Jo renounced her old ambition, pledged herself to a new and better one, acknowledging the poverty of other desires 
and feeling the blessed solace of a belief in the immortality of love. So the spring days came and went, the sky grew clearer, the earth greener, the flowers were up fairly early, and the birds came back in time to say goodbye to Beth, who like a tired but trustful child clung to the hands that had led her all her life as father and mother guided her tenderly through the valley of the shadow and gave her up to God. Seldom except in books do the dying utter memorable words, see visions, or depart with beatified countenances, and those who have spared many parting souls know that to most the end comes as naturally and simply as sleep. As Beth had home, the tide went out easily, and in the dark hour before dawn, on the bosom where she had drawn her first breath, she quietly drew her last, with no farewell but one loving look, one little sigh. With tears and prayers and tender hands, mother and sisters made her ready for the long sleep that pain would never mar again. Seeing with grateful eyes the beautiful serenity that soon replaced the pathetic patience that had wrung their hearts so long, and feeling with reverent joy that to their darling death was a benignant angel not a phantom full of dread. When morning came, for the very first time in many months, the fire was out. Joe's place was empty, and the room was very still. But a bird sang blithely on a budding bough close by. The snowdrops blossomed freshly at the window, and the spring sunshine streamed in like a benediction over the placid face upon the pillow, a face so full of painless peace that those who loved it best smiled through the tears and thanked God that Beth was well at last. Chapter 41 Learning to Forget Amy's lecture did Laurie good, though, of course, he did not own it till long afterward. Men seldom do, for when women are the advisers, the lords of creation don't take the advice till they have persuaded themselves that it is just what they intended to do. Then they act upon it, and if it succeeds, they give the woman half the credit of it. If it fails, they generously give her the whole. Laurie went back to his grandfather and was so dutifully devoted for several weeks that the old gentleman declared the climate of Nice had improved him wonderfully and he had better try it again. There was nothing the young gentleman would have liked better but elephants could not have dragged him back after the scolding he had received. Pride forbid, and whenever the longing grew very strong, he fortified his resolution by repeating the words that had made the deepest impression. I despise you. Go and do something splendid that will make her love you. Laurie turned the matter over in his mind so often that he soon brought himself to confess that he had been selfish and lazy. But then, when a man has great sorrow, he should be indulged in all sorts of vagaries till he has lived it down. He felt that his blighted affections 
were quite dead now, and though he should never cease to be a faithful mourner, there was no occasion to wear his weeds ostentatiously. Joe wouldn't love him, but he might make her respect and admire him by doing something which should prove that a girl's no had not spoiled his life. He had always meant to do something, and Amy's advice was quite unnecessary. He had only been waiting till the aforesaid blighted affections were decently interred. That being done, he felt he was ready to hide his stricken heart and still toil on. As Goethe, when he had a joy or a grief, put it into a song, so Laurie resolved to embalm his love sorrow in music and to compose a requiem which should harrow up Joe's soul and melt the heart of every hearer. Therefore, the next time the old gentleman found him getting restless and moody and ordered him off, he went to Vienna, where he had musical friends, and fell to work with the firm determination to distinguish himself. But whether the sorrow was too vast to be embodied in music, or music too ethereal to uplift a mortal woe, he soon discovered that the requiem was beyond him just at present. It was evident that his mind was not in working order yet, and his ideas needed clarifying, for often in the middle of a plaintive strain, he would find himself humming a dancing tune that vividly recalled the Christmas ball at Nice, especially the stout Frenchman, and put an effectual stop to tragic composition for the time being. Then he tried an opera, for nothing seemed impossible in the beginning, but here again, unforeseen difficulties beset him. He wanted Joe for his heroine, and called upon his memories to supply him with tender recollections and romantic visions of his love. But memory turned traitor, and as if possessed by the perverse spirit of the girl, would only recall Joe's oddities, faults, and freaks, would only show her in the most unsentimental aspect beating mats with her head tied up in a bandana, barricading herself with the sofa pillow, or throwing cold water over his passion, and an irresistible laugh spoiled the pensive picture he was endeavouring to paint. Joe wouldn't be put into the opera at any price, and he had to give her up with a bless that girl what a torment she is, and a clutch at his hair as he became a distracted composer. When he looked about him for another and less intractable damsel to immortalize in melody, memory produced one with the most obliging readiness. This phantom wore many faces, but it always had golden hair, was enveloped in a diaphanous cloud and floated airily before his mind's eye in a pleasing chaos of roses, peacocks, white ponies, and blue ribbons. He did not give the complacent wraith any name, but he took her for his heroine and grew quite fond of her, as well he might for he gifted her with every gift and grace under the sun and escorted her unscathed through trials which would have annihilated any mortal woman. Thanks to this inspiration, he got on swimmingly for a time, but gradually the work lost its charm and he forgot to compose while he sat musing pen in hand, 
or roamed about the city to get some new ideas and refresh his mind, which seemed to be in a somewhat unsettled state that winter. He did not do much, but he thought a great deal and was conscious of a change of some sort going on in spite of himself. It's genius simmering, perhaps. I'll let it simmer and see what comes of it, he said, with a secret suspicion all the while that it wasn't genius, but something far more common. Whatever it was, it simmered to some purpose, for he grew more and more discontented with his desultory life, began to long for some real and earnest work to go at, soul and body, and finally came to the wise conclusion that everyone who loved music was not a composer. Returning from one of Mozart's grand operas, splendidly performed at the Royal Theatre, he looked over his own, played a few of the best parts, sat staring at the busts of Mendelssohn, Beethoven, and Bach, who stared benignly back again. Then suddenly, he tore up his music sheets one by one, and as the last fluttered out of his hand, he said soberly to himself, She's right. Talent isn't genius, and you can't make it so. That music has taken the vanity out of me as Rome took it out of her. I won't be a humbug any longer. Now what shall I do? That seemed a hard question to answer, and Laurie began to wish he had to work for his daily bread. Now, if ever, occurred an eligible opportunity for going to the devil, as he once forcibly expressed it, for he had plenty of money and nothing to do, and Satan is proverbially fond of providing employment for full and idle hands. Poor fellow had temptations enough from without and from within, but he withstood them pretty well, for much as he valued liberty, he valued good faith and confidence more. So his promise to his grandfather and his desire to be able to look honestly into the eyes of the woman who loved him and say, all's well, kept him safe and steady. Very likely, some Mrs. Grundy will observe, I don't believe it. Boys will be boys. Young men must sow their wild oats, and women must not expect miracles. I dare say you don't, Mrs. Grundy, but it's true nevertheless. Women work a good many miracles, and I have a persuasion that they may perform even that of raising the standard of manhood by refusing to echo such sayings. Let the boys be boys, the longer the better, and let the young men sow their wild oats if they must. But mothers, sisters, and friends may help to make the crop a small one and keep the many tares from spoiling the harvest by believing and showing that they believe in the possibility of loyalty to the virtues which make men manliest in good women's eyes. If it is a feminine delusion, leave us to enjoy it while we may, for without it half the beauty and the romance of life is lost, and sorrowful forebodings would embitter all our hopes of the brave tender-hearted little lads who still love their mothers better than themselves and are not ashamed to own it. Laurie thought that the task of forgetting his love for Joe would absorb all his powers for years, but to his great surprise, he discovered it grew easier every day. He refused to believe it at first, 
got angry with himself and couldn't understand it. But these hearts of ours are curious and contrary things, and time and nature work their will in spite of us. Laurie's heart wouldn't ache. The wound persisted in healing with a rapidity that astonished him, and instead of trying to forget, he found himself trying to remember. He had not foreseen this turn of affairs and was not prepared for it. He was disgusted with himself, surprised at his own fickleness and full of a queer mixture of disappointment and relief that he could recover from such a tremendous blow so soon. He carefully stirred up the embers of his lost love, but they refused to burn into a blaze. There was only a comfortable glow that warmed and did him good without putting him into a fever, and he was reluctantly obliged to confess that the boyish passion was slowly subsiding into a more tranquil sentiment, very tender, a little sad and resentful still, but that was sure to pass away in time, leaving a brotherly affection which would last unbroken to the end. As the word brotherly passed through his mind in one of his reveries, he smiled and glanced up at the picture of Mozart that was before him. Well, he was a great man. When he couldn't have one sister, he took the other and was happy. Laurie did not utter the words, but he thought them, and the next instant kissed the little old ring saying to himself, No, I won't. Haven't forgotten. I never can. I'll try again, and if that fails, why then... Leaving his sentence unfinished, he seized the pen and paper and wrote to Joe, telling her that he could not settle to anything while there was the least hope of her changing her mind. Couldn't she? Wouldn't she? and let him come home and be happy. While waiting for an answer, he did nothing, but he did it energetically, for he was in a fever of impatience. It came at last, and settled his mind effectually on one point, for Joe decidedly couldn't and wouldn't. She was wrapped up in bed and never wished to hear the word love again, Then she begged him to be happy with somebody else, but always keep a little corner of his heart for his loving sister, Jo. In a postscript, she desired him not to tell Amy that Beth was worse. She was coming home in the spring, and there was no need of saddening the remainder of her stay. That would be time enough, please God, but Laurie must write to her often, not let her feel lonely, homesick, or anxious. So I will at once. Poor little girl. will be sad going home for her, I'm afraid. And Laurie opened his desk, as if writing to Amy had been the proper conclusion of the sentence, left unfinished some weeks before. But he did not write the letter that day. For as he rummaged out his best paper, he came across something which changed his purpose. Tumbling about in one part of the desk, among bills, passports, and business documents of various kinds, were several of Joe's letters, and in another compartment were three notes from Amy carefully tied up with one of her blue ribbons and sweetly suggestive of the little dead roses put away inside. With a half-repentant, half-amused expression, Laurie gathered up all Joe's letters, smoothed, folded, and put them neatly into a small drawer of the desk, stood a minute turning the ring thoughtfully on his finger, then slowly drew it off 
laid it with the letters, locked the drawer, and went out to hear high mass at St. Stephan's, feeling as if there had been a funeral, and though not overwhelmed with affliction, this seemed a more proper way to spend the rest of the day than writing letters to charming young ladies. The letter went very soon, however, and was promptly answered, for Amy was homesick and confessed it in the most delightfully confiding manner. The correspondence flourished famously, and letters flew to and fro with unfailing regularity all through the early spring. Laurie sold his busts, made alamets of his opera, and went back to Paris, hoping somebody would arrive before long. He wanted desperately to go to Nice, but would not till he was asked, and Amy would not ask him, for just then she was having little experiences of her own, which had made her rather wish to avoid the quizzical eyes of our boy. Fred Vaughan had returned and put the question to which she had once decided to answer, yes, thank you. But now she said, no, thank you. Kindly, but steadily. For when the time came, her courage failed her, and she found that something more than money and position was needed to satisfy the new longing that filled her heart so full of tender hopes and fears. The words, Fred is a good fellow, but not at all the man I fancied you would ever like, and Laurie's face when he uttered them kept returning to her as pertinaciously as her own did when she said in look, if not in words, I shall marry for money. It troubled her to remember that now. She wished she could take it back. It sounded so unwomanly. She didn't want Laurie to think her heartless, worldly creature. She didn't care to be a queen of society now, half so much as she did to be a lovable woman. She was so glad he didn't hate her for the dreadful things she said, but took them so beautifully and was kinder than ever. His letters were such a comfort, for the home letters were very irregular and not half so satisfactory as his when they did come. It was not only a pleasure, but a duty to answer them, for the poor fellow was forlorn and needed petting since Joe persisted in being stony-hearted. She ought to have made an effort to try to love him. It couldn't be very hard. Many people would be proud and glad to have such a dear boy care for them. But Joe would never act like other girls, so there was nothing to do but be very kind and treat him like a brother. If all brothers were treated as well as Laurie was at this period, there would be a much happier race of beings than they are. Amy never lectured now. She asked his opinion on all subjects. She was interested in everything he did, made charming little presents for him, and sent him two letters a week, full of lively gossip, sisterly confidences, and captivating sketches of the lovely scenes about her. As few brothers are complimented by having their letters carried about in their sister's pockets and read and reread diligently, cried over when short, kissed when long, and treasured carefully, we will not hint that Amy did any of these fond and foolish things, but she certainly did grow a little pale and pensive that spring, lost much of her relish for society, and went out sketching alone a good deal. She never had much to show when she came home, but was studying nature, I dare say, while she sat for hours 
with her hands folded on the terrace at Valrosa, or absently sketched any fancy that occurred to her, a stalwart knight carved on a tomb, a young man asleep in the grass with his hat over his eyes, or a curly-haired girl in gorgeous array promenading down a ballroom on the arm of a tall gentleman, both faces being left a blur according to the last fashion in art, which was safe, but not altogether satisfactory. Her aunt thought that she regretted her answer to Fred, and finding denials useless and explanations impossible, Amy left her to think what she liked, taking care that Laurie should know that Fred had gone to Egypt. That was all, but he understood it and looked relieved as he said to himself with a venerable air. I was sure she would think better of it. Poor fellow. I've been through it all, and I can sympathize. With that, he heaved a great sigh, and then, as if he had discharged his duty to the past, put his feet up on the sofa and enjoyed Amy's letter luxuriously. While these changes were going on abroad, trouble had come at home, but the letter telling that Beth was failing never reached Amy. When they next found her, the grass was green above her sister. The sad news met her at Vevey, for the heat had driven them from Nice in May, and they had travelled slowly to Switzerland by way of Genoa and the Italian lakes. She bore it very well and quietly submitted to the family decree that she should not shorten her visit, for since it was too late to say goodbye to Beth, she had better stay and let absence soften her sorrow. But her heart was very heavy. She longed to be at home and every day looked wistfully across the lake, waiting for Laurie to come and comfort her. He did come very soon, for the same mail brought letters to them both. But he was in Germany, and it took some days to reach him. The moment he read it, he packed his knapsack, bade adieu to his fellow pedestrians, and was off to keep his promise, with a heart full of joy and sorrow, hope and suspense.